My name is Gabriel White, um, and today I will be speaking with Rachel York. This is part of our Trial Tools series that we're going to be doing here from time to time on the Trial Lawyer Podcast, and she will uh, explain a little bit about what she does. She does a lot of uh, amazing things that can help you to better understand the decision makers in your case, how your case presents to a jury, and what you can do to be a better trial lawyer. So without further ado, we'll move into the interview. Enjoy. All right. And as I mentioned, um, we're going to be speaking today with Rachel York here on the Trial Lawyer Podcast. Rachel, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, the business you work for? Sure. Thanks for having me, Gabe. Um, My name is Rachel York, as you mentioned. I am a senior jury consultant with Magna Legal Services. We're an end-to-end litigation services provider, and our consulting group includes jury consultants such as myself, uh, graphic designers, trial presentation consultants, and uh, and more. And uh, the bulk of what our jury research group does is just that. We do pre-trial jury research uh, in order to test and hone and refine your cases before you get to trial. And then we assist, obviously, at trial with things like jury selection, uh, voir dire, uh, in-court monitoring, shadow juries, anything related to a jury we are here to help with. Okay, and you and I have talked a little bit before this, and I want this discussion to be a little bit freeform because some of the stuff you talked about was very exciting to me. Shadow juries. Um, I think, you know, having watched the TV series Bull, um, several of our listeners may be familiar with this concept generally, which I think that show is loosely based on the early career of Phil McGraw. Is that correct? It is. Dr. Phil uh, met Oprah when he was her jury consultant uh, when she was sued by the beef industry after she did a show on mad cow disease. Um, That's how the two of them met. Uh, So Dr. Phil, most people don't realize, started out as a jury consultant, got hooked up with Oprah, and the rest is history. Uh, But as you mentioned, if if you watch that show, Bull, uh, you might be familiar with the term that they use. They call it a mirror jury. And here at Magna, we call them shadow juries. It's the same concept in that we panel a group of shadow or mirror jurors to do just that to mirror the actual seated trial jury so we're looking for people with similar demographics socioeconomic status life experiences opinions attitudes that you've got on the actual jury to sit on our shadow jury they observe the trial in the courtroom just as the actual jury does. Uh, so if there are times when the real jury is asked to leave the courtroom, the shadow jury leaves, uh, they he- see and hear exactly what the trial jury hears. And at the end of each day, they give the Magna consultant feedback on what went on in court that day. So they're giving us an understanding of their reactions to your witnesses, uh, what they got out of the witness's testimony, if they understood the witness's testimony, if they understood the relevance uh, after hearing the testimony that day, what side they're favoring, you know, what questions they're asking themselves, 
what witnesses they're wondering if they're going to hear from and generally kind of what themes are or are not resonating with them. So essentially you're getting a focus group or a mock jury after each day of trial with the shadow jury. And I mean, do, does the judge ever ask, you know, who are these people that are wandering in and out of the gallery of my courtroom? I mean, how do you guys handle I mean, I'm sure the jury sometimes picks up on this. Right? Sure. I mean, I'm, it definitely depends on the judge. Uh, some judges, all judges will realize that there are this group of people in the courtroom. Uh, some might be savvy to what's going on and just don't ask, uh, or they don't really care if it's an open courtroom. You know, the public is entitled to be there observing. Uh, other judges will ask, you know, out of curiosity, who are these folks? And the way we handle it is to inform the judge that we are a group of researchers who are interested in studying this type of litigation, and we will be observing the trial. Um, the Magna Consultant maintains neutrality throughout the process and that we don't interact with anyone on the trial team. So uh, the shadow jurors, the actual jurors, nor the other side, uh, you know, knows exactly what's going on. The shadow jurors don't know which side of the case has retained them because we don't let on to who we may know or not know. Um, so usually when you tell the judge or group of researchers, they leave it at that. Uh, there are times when opposing counsel has pressed a bit further to find out we really want to know who these people are we'd like to close the courtroom and in those instances we simply uh you know out of the earshot of the actual or the shadow jurors of course will disclose what's happening um and you know no rules are are being broken so there's nothing improper about it and um we've never had an instance where we were not allowed to proceed with the shadow jury typically you don't really want the other side to know what's going on um but these days as you mentioned with shows like bull people are more and more aware of things like that and there's a good chance that if you're team has a shadow jury that the other side might as well. Uh, we've had that situation where we've, uh, you know, been seated across the aisle from an opposing shadow jury and everybody kind of understood what was happening. Um, so even if the other side and the judge know that you've got a shadow jury there, they're not privy to the feedback that you're getting from your shadow jurors. So they'll, they're curious, um, but only you get the benefit of that strategy. So how does the, I mean, if the person managing the shadow jury for Magna doesn't interact with the trial team at all, how does the trial team get that feedback? I mean, is there a third person or is there a psychologist that's there to kind of interpret the results? And then do they get like a, a briefing or like some sort of written mm -hmm. document? Yeah, that's a great question. So when I said we don't interact with the trial team, I should have clarified that we don't interact with the trial team in the courthouse, oh. but we do then ha go and have a briefing with the trial team wherever it is that you are hunkered down for the duration of trial. We'll meet you there. Um, last shadow jury I did was in Pittsburgh, and our hub was the courtyard at Pittsburgh, and we had a suite where ev every night, you know, five o'clock. We met uh, with the team, we debriefed them on here's what our shadow jurors had to say, and then we talked about, okay, based on what we're hearing, how can we address this moving forward? You know, what witnesses do we have coming up that can clarify some of these things that the jurors are not sure about? Are there any witnesses we might be able to bring in at this point to testify to some of these issues? And, you know, again, what themes should we try to 
reiterate throughout the witness testimony and in closing. So it's a real interactive process. Um, there are some situations where the trial team says, look, we love it, but we're too busy to have an in-person debriefing every night. Just send us a quick email with the highlights of what the shadow juror said. If there's something more we need to go into, uh, we'll do that. Or there might be a designated person from the trial team that meets with the consultant one-on-one -on -one and then passes along, again, the highlights to the rest of the team. So we do whatever the team is most comfortable with. Now, what having seen that show, Bull, I mean, I know, um, you know a lot of legal... TV shows uh, tend to drive me nuts because of the inaccuracies and in some of the stuff. I mean, what are some of the things there that they maybe overstate or that, you know, aren't realistic that you see and maybe bug you as a, as a real life trial consultant? <laughs> Sure. I mean, some of the things that aren't really realistic, at least for now, are uh, the biofeedback that they're using on their mirror juries. Um, they've got, you know, they're measuring perspiration and heart rate and things like that on their shadow jurors to track their every physiological response to the evidence. And that's not really being done right now, uh, but it's something actually that Magna is actively working on moving forward in that uh, we've been working on, for example, some ocular tracking devices that track where a person looks, how long they look at a certain spot, uh, how often their eyes are moving, are they moving back and forth between the witness and the attorney, are they just laser focused on the witness, are they looking back to the your table at your client, and that can tell you a lot about uh, what the jurors are focused on and how they're processing information. So that's definitely the wave of the future is this biofeedback techniques. Um, right now it's, it's not really actively in use uh, and it remains to be seen, you know, can you get all of that equipment into every courtroom? A lot of the federal courthouses are more strict about any kind of device that you're bringing in. You can't even have your cell phone in the room. Uh, so that'll kind of be the next wave of testing out what can and can't be done discreetly in a courtroom while not breaking any rules. Um, so that doesn't really bug me as a consultant. It's just something that's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, they've, they've leaped forward or leapt forward a few years on that. Um, the one thing that I would say probably bugs me as being unrealistic is the consultant looking deep into a mirror juror's eyes and, you know, kind of reading their mind and <laughs> getting all the feedback they need just with a look. And I wish that I could do that, but I have to say uh, my, my training did not teach me how to read minds. Well, they've got to have instances. I mean, if you're going to pay for Michael Weatherly to be on your show, <laughs> you've got to have instances where the, the audience gets to look deep into his eyes. Otherwise, you're wasting your money, right? I mean, That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I assume that, and maybe I'm wrong, but I assume that this is something that happens primarily on very large, high-dollar value cases. Am I wrong in that? No, you're not wrong on that. Um, you know, it's not an inexpensive undertaking, um, but we're actually seeing them used more and more. And I think this just kind of reflects the state of jury consulting in general. It used to be that only the highest stakes, highest profile cases used a jury consultant. Think, you know, O.J. Simpson uh, or just a, a bet the company type of case. These days, with technology and some of the innovations that uh, companies like Magna have implemented, 
you can really do jury research on any case, no matter how big or small, and it's invaluable in every case. And so shadow juries are one of those techniques that more and more people are using, uh, again, because they recognize how invaluable it is. For example, we've got clients who may not have the budget for a shadow jury over the entire trial, but they use one for opening statements. And they can get a sense for, okay, they've heard the plaintiff's opening, now they've heard our opening, what does the shadow jury think? How would they vote? And that can inform trial strategy moving forward, or do we need to settle the case now? Is it really looking grim for us? Let's go ahead and get it settled uh, before we risk a jury verdict. Now, do you have a breakdown? I think we talked about this before, but I can't remember. Do you have a breakdown as to how often you're retained by defendants versus plaintiffs? Um, those you know, I don't have the exact statistic, but we are definitely most often retained by defendants, um, and I just think that's the nature of the legal practice and, you know, budgets, um, defendants are, we're working with are often corporations, um, that have insurance policies and they have the budgets, uh, plaintiffs often aren't working with the same budgets or they're just not willing to, uh, to use what is in their budget on, uh, on jury research. So, but it does happen. We, we have, worked for the plaintiff on occasion um, and most of our work is also civil we do the occasional white collar case uh, we do some pro bono criminal work as well but the bulk is civil defense work and um, you you mentioned previously some options that you have available that make things like focus groups um, some pretrial stuff uh, that can typically eat up quite a bit of a budget, a little more affordable. Tell us about that. Sure. So a lot of people will be familiar with the traditional mock trial. You gather in person and the jurors hear some form of presentation on behalf of plaintiff and defense, and then they deliberate. Uh, we have taken that process and put it online. Uh, into a very cost-effective and efficient focus group process that we call Jury Confirm. And uh, it allows you to test the case in your trial venue with live presentations given by attorneys that are presenting via webcam. Uh, it allows you to still present evidence and witness testimony to the jurors. So we can play clips of deposition testimony, for example, or otherwise. And the jurors still deliberate with one another on the case. So it's still a live an interactive focus group. It's not just, for example, an online survey, um, but it really gets uh, the bulk of the feedback that you would get from a traditional in-person mock trial done at less than half the cost. It's obviously not for every case because it is a streamlined process. It's meant to have shorter presentations and uh, a couple hours of deliberations versus, for example, an entire afternoon like you might have at a, an in-person mock trial. So in certain more complex cases or with particularly sensitive issues where you really feel like you need to be in person and look at the jurors in the flesh. Uh, but otherwise, for a lot of cases, this online process works very well to tease out, you know, how are jurors approaching the case? Again, what themes are they latching onto? What are the issues that we need to work on? 
in order to bolster our side of the case and what questions do jurors have? What do we need to clarify for them? It can be used to do all that. It uh, works really well to test specific issues. If there are certain things, maybe you're wanting to try out a certain trial strategy, um, find out how far you can push a contributory negligence argument, for example, without making the jurors angry. Or maybe you want to find out how they react to the key witness in your case. If your case hinges on whether your jurors believe a witness or not, test it out with an online focus group and find out what do people think of that witness. Okay. Now, what is the price differential between doing an online focus group through you guys versus the whole, you know, the whole shebang, the whole in-person focus group? I mean, how much of a savings are we talking about here? The online focus group is about 40% of the cost of an in-person mock trial. And when you do those in-person mock trials, do you typically do them at your location or do you travel out to uh, where the attorneys are? Or? We travel. So we actually are going to travel to the trial venue, which is often where the attorneys are, but often not. Um, but the idea behind that is that jurors in different locations approach any given case quite differently. A Philadelphia jury is going to be very different than, uh, you know, a Phoenix, Arizona jury or a Mississippi jury. People just have different values, different life experiences in each trial venue. So it makes it very important to try your test your case rather with people in the community in which the case will be tried in order to get an accurate reflection of what a trial jury might say and do. Okay, so how do you go about making sure that you have a demographically accurate mock juror, whether it's for the online program or whether it's for the in-person presentation? So our recruiting is the same whether we're going to be doing an in-person or an online focus group or mock trial. We will look at the latest census data and other available demographic and socioeconomic information about your venue, and we're going to create sort of a quota of this is what a cross-section of this community looks like. These are the types of people that we would expect to show up for jury duty on any given day in this courthouse. And based on that cross-section or that demographic quota, we then recruit our mock jurors to fit uh, those profiles. For example, when you do a focus group with us, you're not going to have a panel of all 70-year-old Caucasian retired males. Um, You're going to have a variety of different people who are working full-time, part-time, some retired, as is representative, uh, but people of all different backgrounds. Um, So we're careful about meeting those certain quotas to obtain that representative cross-section. We also take our jurors through a screening process such that not just anyone can show up for your focus group. Uh, For example, if you have if you are representing a corporate defendant, anyone that is somehow affiliated with that company would be screened out. Uh, anyone that recognizes the names of plaintiff counsel, 
and says, oh, right, my sister is a paralegal at that law firm, uh, that person would be screened out so that no one has any potential conflict or any potential stake or motivation in the case when they show up for our mock jury duty. So how do you handle that issue in a situation where you have, and I, I assume this comes up more often than people might think, where you have a very small venue, you have a small venari, and I know that a lot of these cases, these bet the company cases, tend to get tried in a few different venues because there is, I mean, you know, plaintiff's counsel would be foolish if they didn't do, you know, if you had a case that could be filed theoretically in almost any district in the nation mm-hmm. in federal court, they'd be foolish if they didn't do some forum shopping and some of those venues in you know parts of Texas or Mississippi uh, some areas in rural Illinois where uh, the, the venire tends to be fairly small uh, but results in some large jury verdicts how do you manage ensuring the confidentiality of um, uh, of of your process and I, and I this question comes up because I was recently involved in a trial in a county that had you know 12 about 12,000 residents and mm-hmm. I mean you know you wouldn't believe the number you know the judge in a typical um, I'm out of Salt Lake so a typical Salt Lake jury trial the judge may call back you know 30 or 40 potential jurors and will seat you know, a full, you know, eight-person jury with two alternates uh, within a couple of hours. In in this venue, the judge called back something like 130, and it took all day to seat a jury because half the jurors were either related or knew each other or had worked together or went to the same church. And so what do you do to... When you're in that situation, you know, and you may be dealing with, you know, like I said, bet the company litigation, where doing the focus group in in the actual venue either may be impractical, impossible, or uh, dangerous. Sure, that's a great question. So typically in that kind of situation with a 12,000 person population in our venue, we're going to be moving to a surrogate venue. Um, In that type of case, it's too small a community to risk uh, something getting out. And while we take great pains to make sure, as I said, that we're screening out people with any potential conflicts or motivation to disclose the exercise, um, it even comes down to, you know, sometimes you're doing these in a hotel or some kind of facility and someone at the hotel gets wind of what's going on and passes it along to, for example, plaintiff counsel if you are working for the defense. So, uh, and you also don't want to taint too much of the jury pool, uh, like you said. And in some venues, for example, in the Eastern District of Texas, there are actually rules now against conducting jury research for that very reason that the pool is getting too small too many jurors were being um, excluded from jury duty because they'd done these mock trials. Uh, So it's, you're no longer even allowed to. Really? Uh, So, yeah, yeah. So for that reason, we're moving to surrogate 
venues, and what we would do is look for um, a county usually nearby, very close to your actual venue, that has very similar demographics and socioeconomics uh, to the actual venue. I mean, so you, the goal, is mm-hmm. the goal to find a locale that, that matches or to find mock jurors that matches? Because I've found, I mean, we talked about the possibility in this case that I did of moving to a nearby county, but we, you know, we, we found that, you know, if we did that, some of the socioeconomic factors would be the same, but some were radically different. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the economy was dependent in some of these other counties on completely different, you know. Um, this particular county was heavily dependent on the oil industry, oil and gas industry, whereas some of the neighboring counties were heavily dependent on tourism. And so that had a dramatic impact on the type of jurors that you would get. You didn't get a lot of people who graduated from high school and immediately went to work in the oil fields in these counties where the big, you know, the big industry was, you know, taking tourists on Jeep tours in, um, you know, through uh, backcountry areas. So, I mean, how do you realistically match those up so that you get reliable results? Yeah, for us, the priority is more matching the jurors than finding matching the locality geographically. Um, often it, it happens conveniently that a neighboring county will be very similar, uh, but in situations as you just described, that can certainly happen where just in the neighboring county, the industry or economy is very different. And in that case, we would likely go elsewhere uh, for our jury pool, or what you might do is use a combination of surrogate counties. And that's what we find ourselves often doing, is that one county isn't going to perfectly replicate your venue, but we can pull jurors from similar counties that are going to be like the jurors you would see in yours. So, for example, if your venue is the one in which the economy was based on the oil industry and we're pulling some jurors from the nearby county where tourism was a big economy, we would specifically look for people with occupations that matched or were similar to uh, and educations, incomes, things like that, that were similar to those in your trial venue. So we're kind of pulling from a variety of different places, but we're more matching the types of people that you would expect in your venue. Okay. Okay. And let's just take a moment to recognize our sponsor. The law offices of Gabriel K. White provides extraordinary service for a reasonable fee. Other personal injury law firms will take a third of your recovery, even if they don't do any work to settle your case. The law offices of Gabriel K. White doesn't operate that way. Our fees depend on our risk, which means that we charge you less if your case settles sooner. Any new injured clients will only have to pay a 25% fee if we settle or resolve the case without filing a complaint or other paperwork with a court, arbitration, or other panel. Compared with what other personal injury law firms charge, that's a savings of over $8,300 on a $100,000 case. Why pay more? If you have been injured in an accident, call the law offices of Gabriel K. White at 801-810-9491. Um, now, I want to switch gears a little bit 
and ask kind of about the impact of some of this research. I mean, what type of advantage do you think, you know, this kind of research gives a litigant? I mean, how much of a difference can it make? Um, And then I have some follow-up questions to that. Sure. I mean, I think it makes all the difference in the world. Um, Reason being, by the time you are getting to the point where a case is going to be mediated or potentially tried, typically the attorneys have lived with the case for a long time, whether it's one year, two, three years, even more sometimes. And the attorneys have gotten focused on, you know, the issues in the case that they feel are the critical ones, what they feel are important. Often the attorneys are more focused on the legal issues. And jurors often just come into a case and they completely disregard those legal issues. It means nothing to them. They don't understand the nuances that the lawyers have argued about for years and think, you know, I've got the superior legal argument. A juror is going to just, that's going to go over their head And they're going to focus on something completely different. And that, I think, is the biggest surprise that many of our clients get in doing jury research is they leave the exercise going, I can't believe that the case for them, you know, was won or lost based on these three issues that we thought were pretty minor factors in the case. But for the jurors, that was it. That was the end-all, be-all. And it can completely change the way that you frame your case. It can change, if you do it early enough, uh, the way that you're going to go about discovery, the witnesses that you're going to seek, you know, what kind of experts you need to retain. Um, That's why we recommend doing research as early as possible. Often we get a call on the eve of trial saying, we've got to mock this case because we're taking it to trial, which is fine. Uh, and you're still going to learn a lot. It will be hugely beneficial. But if you can do it early enough, um, when you can actually help use the jury research to inform discovery, it really shapes the case from the juror's perspective, which, as I just went over earlier, can be so very different from the attorney's perspective. So I guess my follow-up, and this is probably a, a little bit of a difficult question to ask, or at least I hope it's a difficult question to, to answer. Um, so how much of this, I mean, does the availability of these kind of resources to the wealthy, to the insurance company, to the corporation, tip the scales of justice in favor of those interests and away from people who are in court you know, and full disclosure, right up front, um, I, I wouldn't consider myself a bleeding heart, but I am a plaintiff's lawyer. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I do, I try and do focus groups when I can, but when I do, they tend to be, you know, stuff that I do on my own, where we, you know, try and do them for, you know, a few thousand bucks. I mean, how how much does this how much does this tip the scales of justice in favor of whoever has the most money? And uh, is there any solution you can see to that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't see it as tipping the scales of justice because 
the facts are what they are, right? So jury research can't help you change the facts. They can't change the evidence that exists. Um, really what it's doing is it's helping you frame the facts and evidence in the most effective way possible. And I will say this, that I think often, not always, but often, plaintiffs have an easier story to tell. Um, typically, plaintiff's position is a little bit more straightforward and the concepts are more relatable to a jury, whereas often defendants um, are left to present a, a more complicated kind of explanation for whatever conduct or behavior is, uh, is at issue. And um, they need help sometimes to express those complicated issues to lay people, uh, you know, in patent litigation particularly. And, and patent litigation is a little bit different because both sides of the aisle uh, you know, really have a lot of explaining to do as far as what the subject of the patent. Um, what I what I know of patent litigation, it, it, there's not going to be much of a sympathy factor there because <laughs> right. what I expect when when Apple and Samsung go head to head on a case, I don't. I, I don't I don't know that anybody's particularly seeing the <laughs> David versus Goliath uh, 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 narrative there, but I'm talking about I mean, obviously what you do has an impact, and in a case where you know you've got an insurance company or a really well-heeled defendant, and then you know. Um, a plaintiff who's been severely injured, unable to work, and, and you know, I mean, how, how much does this change the, the, the balance of power between those two parties? I mean, you mentioned that sometimes the plaintiff's, you know, story is a little easier to tell, and I, I, I mean, I get that. It's a lot easier to say, hey... You know, these guys ran me over in the crosswalk, and here are my injuries. Then to explain, you know, here's why it was okay that we ran her over in the crosswalk. But, exactly. Right, but um, I mean, how 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 much of an impact do you feel like this has on the ability of, you know, just to 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 state it as as simply as I can, the ability of poor people to get justice from from people who were either protected by insurance companies or from big corporations? Yeah, you know, I think that really in my experience, defendants, and it may not be your experience as a, a plaintiff attorney, but defendants seem to be fair to the extent that, that they can and that if there's really a case where this is someone who was hurt due to what was our fault and they need to be compensated. It's my experience that that case is not going to be going to trial, that a defendant and their insurance company will be reasonable and make an appropriate settlement with the plaintiff. The cases that you know our clients are using us for are cases where they legitimately think that they have 
a point in the case, they really truly believe that they're not liable for whatever reason, or maybe they're conceding some liability or even all liability, but there's a real question as to what really were the damages that were caused in this incident. Um, And so I think what it allows a defendant to do is, again, to help explain those more complicated issues. So it's really just letting someone put their best foot forward. Um, and you know, you mentioned how does this affect uh, someone that doesn't have a lot of resources. I would say that typically they're relying on their counsel to be the best advocate possible. And, and plaintiff attorneys have resources as well. You know, you mentioned you do focus groups when you can, and uh, that's the important thing. If you've got an issue that you really feel is important to test, you know that it's important to do so in whatever form you can, whether it's a traditional mock trial or if it's something more informal and less costly. And that's one of the reasons that we developed that jury confirm product I mentioned earlier, the online focus group, is it really does allow everybody to test their cases and not just corporate defendants or insurance companies that have deep pockets. Um, So it really, it's letting the plaintiff attorneys test their cases as well to make sure that you're presenting your best case. So, you know, as I said, we're not inventing new evidence for a defendant, but we're helping them put their best foot forward. No, and I I can definitely see that. I mean, I think there's areas where you and I are going to agree and disagree. I think that... Mm -hmm. You know, um, some of these tools like the focus groups, I can do a, an abbreviated one for on my own for 2500 bucks. It may not be as statistically valid as the ones you guys do, but it does give me some idea. Now, uh, the area where I don't know that we're ever going to, we, we are ever going to agree is that defendants are typically fair to plaintiffs and pay them, <laughs> pay them when they feel sure. like they should because... Um, I, my experience, big insurance companies don't get that way by writing a lot of checks, but, um, but I can definitely see how, you know, the more you can streamline these processes and those online, uh, options are very intriguing to me as a plaintiff's lawyer, because, you know, the ability to get this kind of research in a more economical sort of way from a more professional source is something that I'm very interested in. You know, because that uh, has the ability of making those resources available to everyone and not just, you know, people with unlimited litigation budgets. Yeah, and you know, I think, as you said, that there's an imbalance in both ways, sort of. So there's the imbalance in that a plaintiff is typically the David versus a defendant's Goliath who has more resources. But the plaintiff, as we've discussed, has a leg up because the plaintiff has a sympathy factor. This is a person who jurors will identify with, will sympathize with, and it's an easier story to tell, an easier story to get jurors to buy into, whereas corporations are coming into a trial with some inherent biases against them, right? Uh, You know, big retailers, for example, jurors have certain ideas about those companies and and, uh, what their priorities are, and it can be hard for a corporate defendant to tell a story and get jurors to buy into it like they would 
the David in the David versus Goliath story. So part of what we do when we work for defendants is we're helping to even that playing field and that we're trying to figure out, you know, how can you at least get jurors to come to the table? How do you get jurors to at least listen to your side of the story, whether they take it or leave it? Um, you know, we're trying to help a, a defendant figure out how do I make myself more personable in the way that a plaintiff simply is. Sure. No, I, I get that. And I, I appreciate, you know, your willingness to talk to us. And, and I think that um, these are very interesting services uh, that you guys provide. I figured um, we've probably taken up more of your time than we had budgeted already. But I wanted to make sure and give you the last word and make sure you include in there where you can where people can contact you, how they can get in touch with you, see the services that you've got, and um, you know any other information you might want potential clients to have. So go ahead. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And as you said, if people are interested in learning more about our services, uh, particularly the couple that I mentioned today, uh, they can go to our website at www.magnals.com so that's m-a-g-n-a-l-s as in legal services.com and uh, look up all of the fabulous jury research options we have including the jury confirm online focus group um, so that you can see a demo of that at juryconfirm.com you can see exactly how that works and our other services are listed there as well that I think both plaintiffs and defendants alike uh, should and, and can avail themselves of. So again, thank you so much for the opportunity. Absolutely. And we appreciate it. Um, we also want to thank all of our listeners. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the trial lawyer podcast.